Welcome to Sustainable Minds, exploring the interplay of corporate brand, corporate beliefs, and ESG. Brought to you by Baker. In every episode, we'll investigate how purpose, vision, and values can guide your company's sustainability actions, behaviors, and mindsets. And we'll discuss their impact with the help of ESG-focused guests from around the globe. I'm your host, Rocket. And I'm your host, Gary. Let's get started. We're talking to Sienna Jackson. Hello, Sienna. Hello, Gary. Welcome to Sustainable Minds. Sienna is a highly accomplished ESG and social impact consultant and producer based in Los Angeles. With over 13 years of diverse professional experience, Sienna has made significant contributions to the film of music for film and television, social enterprises, nonprofit organizations, advocacy work, and startups. Sienna is the founder and CEO of Zorin Creative Strategy, and Zorin Creative Strategy is a social enterprise consultancy that offers social impact strategy, campaign management solutions for nonprofits, government agencies, brands, and businesses to grow their triple bottom line. We're going to dig into that, okay? Their approach to social impact is built on the intersection of cause, culture, and capital. Another great topic. Sienna is also a freelance producer. Previous to starting her own consultancy, she was the head of film and television music of the Spyglass Media Group, and she was a director for film and television music at the Weinstein Company. Bet you there's stories there. (laughs) She earned her her MBA from UCLA Anderson School of Management, her MS in communications from Drexel. What were you doing in Philly? I was doing that completely remotely. I was full time working in Los Angeles and getting that. I think I was like 23 when I got that degree. Okay, because I spent a lot of time in Philly. So there you go. (laughs) No Brexel. And a BA in journalism and political science from Pepperdine University. Oh, yeah. You're digging all the way back. (laughs) Like (laughs) late teens, early 20s for me. Yeah. So listen, I'm kind of curious here. So how did you get into the music industry? Yeah, it was very much an accident. So I had started college at a very young age. I was 14 when I started going to community college in Pierce Mm -hmm. and Woodland Hills. And part of that first degree was internship. You know, it was like a personal development course. Mm -hmm. It was like a course that I'd taken for the degree there. And I had the opportunity to do internship anywhere for college credit. And my dad had seen that there was an opening for an internship in the music department at the Weinstein Company. And this would have been at like 2010. I was just about to turn 17. So I walked into what was then the old offices. Yeah, on Miracle Mile. I think like E was also at those offices on Miracle Mile. And I walked out with the gig. And at the time, the company just had a big round of layoffs. So it was like kind of a ghost town in the LA office. But significantly, the King's speech was in post. So mm-hmm. that was a really great score by Alexander Desplat. And mm-hmm. it was kind of that movie launched almost a decades long run of like best picture nom after best picture nom at that studio. So when I came in, it was, they were about to have this upward swing of like King's Speech, the artist, Silver Linings Playbook. And the music department at the time was two people. So I was coming in as an intern and the music library at that time was like 25 MP3s on a Macintosh. It was like very... It was all very, it was like kind of a ghost town, but also like a wild west where you had all this incredible talent. We were working on these amazing 
projects, but then the company itself was like very small groups of people punching way above their weight in terms of the work that we were getting done. So I immediately just started working on projects that were so beyond my pay grade. Good for you. My boss, Good for you. Yeah. Yeah, but my boss at the time, Richard Glass, was kind of like looking at me as this 17-year-old who had never had a job before. He's like, I'll teach you everything I know. So I was just like <laughs> sitting on conference calls with like amazing talent and like folks from CA or WME and like sitting on meetings. And I learned the whole music business just by being very hands-on and kind of just thrown out there. So I'd be out like three or four nights a week, going to shows, going to concerts, meeting people. I'd be out to like, two, three in the morning. <laughs> Most nights I'd start my day the next day at like 10. So it was like a 10 to six. And then I'd have like the second shift of going out and just rubbing elbows with people. And I worked on a lot of great projects during that period. So it was like, like I said, King's Speech through like artists of Linux Playbook, all the Quentin Tarantino films at that time, all the way up to Hateful Eight. And we worked with like incredible artists. Like we worked with Taylor Swift, Pharrell Williams, Jay-Z executive produced some content for us on like the docu-side. Got to work with U2, Iggy Pop. It was wild. And then during that time, I was like late teens, early 20s. I also did some government affairs work. So I sat on what was called the LA Music Leaders Roundtable. Mm -hmm. And that was like an advocacy group that my boss Richard had formed with a bunch of other kind of like Lamont Dozier and like some like crazy folks in the music space to talk to Congress and to talk to the Copyright Office about music copyright. So this was during the Obama years, like around, mm -hmm. this would have been like 2013, 2014. So I was yeah. like 20 or 21. And that was cool because it was interesting to see that revolving door. I had like an interesting perspective on the revolving door between Hollywood and DC at that time, because LA functionally is kind of like the DC of the West Coast. And I've done, I got involved in so many different things on like the policy side where I realized that, you know, storytellers and storytelling had a lot of influence on policy and decision makers. And the folks in Washington were very enamored with Hollywood and the folks in LA and vice versa. So there was this interesting discourse, especially during those Obama years, that very much, I think, fell off, you know, with the guy who followed after. <laughs> you know, <laughs> that yeah, that yeah, love affair kind of died out. Yeah, you think? Yeah. But that was just kind of like, that was like my start in having a career. And so from like 17 to 27, I was there and then Me Too happened and I transitioned into Spyglass, which is kind of like a successor company. So during those times, did you develop any mentors? Were there anybody like either in the music or over DC and in, in the social area that you kind of really looked up to and thought this person's doing a lot of good. I want to be like them. I mean, if it was a thing. I've never been the type to, to seek out a specific mentor. I think the only boss I've ever had was Richard, Richard Glasser, who was the head of music at TWC. And he was great because he was very encouraging of my own professional development and gave me a lot of trust. And I think that is really critical when you want to develop people and you want to develop talent is give them the trust to figure things out. So that was really important and formative for me. And then when in those early years, I got to meet so many like excellent folks just working in music or working on even social impact related issues. A lot of our content ended up having a social bent or a social mission. So things like The Hunting Ground, which is a documentary on campus sexual assault. A lot of amazing women were working on that project. We worked on The Imitation Game, which was another kind of 
impact-driven lion. We raised a lot of money for charity. So it's just, I was kind of surrounded by people who were leveraging their Rolodexes or leveraging the stories that they were telling to make a difference in the world that was like tangible. So that was just inspiring environment to be in. So was there a turning point? Was there a project or a campaign that you worked on that was you felt was really significant and sort of confirm this direction? I mean, for me, it was, I think like you'd have to go even further back. So when I was younger and still at Pierce getting my first degree, I was a journalism major, I think you mentioned in the intro, and I was very interested in like international relations. So I was doing a lot of reporting as like this 16-year-old on the Arab Spring And because of my own abilities, I was able to just talk to kids directly that were protesting for democracy in the Middle East, even if there was like, like there were workarounds, even if there was like a firewall that the government was imposing or they were restricting access, there were ways to get around that and get in touch with people. So that was something that was inspiring because I was able to like listen to people's stories and then write about them for my school paper and share their stories with a pretty broad readership because my readership went from LA all the way up to Sacramento. So writing about those stories was really cool. When I was in my early 20s and working at Weinstein, I would do a lot of stuff like that was not like at all anything to do with my work. I would just like work with grassroots activists and organizers. So one of my dear friends and I were introduced by someone at the ACLU. So like we had, we were like doing stuff with ACLU separately and like the one of the lead of comms there for ACLU SoCal was like, oh, you've got to, like, I want to set you up on a, like a friend date. And so it was just always kind of, that was like my whole existence was just like running around and kind of getting involved in in projects or getting involved in like different causes or collaborating with people. So it's Mm -hmm. always been about just being able to freely collaborate with people that I like and admire on so many different issues. So it all kind of blurs, it all kind of blends together in my memory. Yeah, that's uh, sounds like it was a very inspiring time for you. Mm-hmm. Uh, learning, learning so much, doing so much, going after stuff that you've never done before. Exactly. And having like the freedom to just do that, which was why it was great to have this the sort of career that most people like spend decades working towards. It just kind of like landed in my lap and I enjoyed it a lot. <laughs> so yeah. those first 10 years were kind of like, it's kind of amazing how much I was able to do. And there are like some things that like, I think back to my early 20s, where I was like, does that really happen? Or did I? <laughs> or did I? No, I, that or, did I? So how did you transition that into the Zorin creative strategy? I want to know oh. about that. And I want to know about what you do in all aspects here. So What's social impact strategy? And let's start with that social impact strategy and campaign management. Okay, sure. So when I, and I think even now, the way that I approach the work that I do has evolved. When we talk about impact broadly, and social impact is just, I think, constituent to ESG as like an umbrella term. Yeah. But when we talk about impact, we're talking about the net positive change rendered through policy, through activities. So if you're you know, if you have certain inputs, resources, or strategy that you're implementing, whether that's for an organization or for a community that you're hoping to see some sort of benefit toward any population or group, the impact is kind of like the net change rendered as a direct result 
of those actions and those strategies and those activities that youth put together. So there's a question there of materiality. How do we make sure that the change that we're seeing is directly attributable to the work that we do and not just some sort of side along sort of benefit from some other external source? So a lot of the work that I do nowadays working with clients is examining, first of all, what is their impact goal? What is it that they're trying to achieve? Maybe it's they're looking at poverty reduction. Maybe they're looking at sustainable supply chains when it comes to food or closing food access gaps within the Greater Los Angeles area, which one of my clients is focused on. It might be how do we refine our global giving strategy to make sure that our philanthropy dollars are making a real difference and how do we report on that to our shareholders. So we look at different problems or look at different things that we're trying to make a positive change. And then we work backwards from there. And I look at, first of all, who is in the landscape that is doing work that is complementary to the mission? Is there a possibility of building a coalition there around the goal? We look at kind of what resources we have to put into place to achieve a goal. We could spend a lot of time looking at impacts in the long term, like, you know, secondary negative impacts for a campaign or an action. And a lot of what I do now is more predictive, right? So I use strategies like SROI, which is social return on investment, or kind of other models for impact measurement to kind of build a model of, okay, here's what we are going to achieve. Here are the populations that we're impacting to what degree, what are the metrics that we're going to be tracking and how do we benchmark and kind of forecast and predict how many resources we need to kind of push into this in order to get the outcome that we want. So it's much more academic now than it was when I started. When I started, I said, oh, I'm, I'm doing social impacts. But that was a term that didn't seem really fully fleshed out to me. And one of the things that I deal with a lot in my profession is people talk about impact and then they don't actually define what the impact is, like what impact means and who are you impacting, to what degree, how are you going to measure it, and how are you going to track it over time and then scale it upward. So I'm really interested in how we measure and define impact and then how do we make it scalable and repeatable if we engage in any sort of impact campaign on one specific issue, how do we scale it up and make it sustainable? Because ideally, if I do my job right, you don't need me. Because if I'm influencing your business strategy to the point where sustainability is kind of ingrained in how you look at your business and its operations day to day, then you don't need me. And if I'm, if we're looking at your balance sheet and we're looking at kind of like a way to PL, like how do you weight all of your social good and in terms of your bottom line, that's like the triple bottom line that I you alluded to. Ideally, you don't need a person like me because it's just baked into your operation. Right. Yes. And then you can move on to the exactly next. to the next one. Because like I, that's, that was my point. Yeah. Yeah. We have we work mostly with with public corporations and we have some people that have been focused a lot around the area of sustainability for quite a few years. And they have their business model and their sustainability model are very intertwined. Of course, that's the ideal. And there are a lot of companies that aren't there yet. But um, well, that's exactly it. It's yeah. standards are still emerging. That's yes. part of the issue. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. We were talking this morning, the two of us, and we were saying in a lot of earning calls that are going on, people are backing away from taking a stand. 
on a lot of issues because of the division in our country right now politically. And from Gary, our perspective is corporate brands really need, I mean, to be courageous and for differentiation, for attracting talent, for the future they shouldn't be backing away. They should be planting a flag and yeah. measuring that social impact. Well, here's the thing. It's, it's that, so it's very interesting that we're talking now in kind of like the beginning of July, right, of 2023, because we've seen in the first half of this year, like the first January through June, you could call it a backlash, but it's always kind of like a seesaw, right? When we look at like progress, societal progress, and corporations like following along, to these trends. And then there's a social backlash and then corporations kind of left saying, oh, how do I manage and navigate this? So since January, you saw a huge amount of like LIFO churn, especially like with DEI roles, which is an area that I'm looking at with my new startup and we'll get to the new startup later. We're seeing a, you know, a huge churn of, of people just being fired and let go and companies kind of downsizing their investment when it comes to DEI at least statedly, like they're dropping people. But however, from a policy standpoint and like the way that governance works at companies, you're still seeing investment. You're still seeing budget allocated to like ESG efforts. They just might not be talking about it to the degree that they were in say like 2020 and 2021. And they're not going to be emphasizing it in terms of branding unless their corporate brand is really about being like, oh, we're certified B Corp or oh, we're this or oh, we're that. And not everybody is Patagonia and you can't expect every That's company right. to function that way. However, when you look at global disclosure and ESG reporting standards and regulations, Europe is pushing this along. And even though the United States right now is going through, again, one of its seesaw moments, which always ricochets back and forth. So it's like, it's not even, this is not even a forever state that we're in. It's going to turn back for some reason or another in the future. So I'm not changing my strategy based on like what is current. I'm looking at the opportunity. I that think that's wise. Is. Yes. And I he think tries. the asset managers aren't either. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So you kind of, you have to have a more long-term view when it comes to, because what, at the end of the day, what is the value of ESG or philanthropy or CSR or whatever term you want to use for it? Are you going to be able to do business in a collapsing society? No. Are you going to be able to do business where environmental or ecological impacts have like fundamentally changed the way that labor functions, the way that your technology works, the way that everything is functioning just on a global level? No. Do you need clear governance to protect you from risk, from bad actors, internal threat actors, from corruption from all of these different problems that could destroy an organization from the inside out. Yes. Do you need to have inclusive workforce that attracts and retains top talent in order to grow your business and to remain competitive? Yes. Do you need to have, you know, cultural understandings to enter, say, a new market? Yeah. Do you need like, so there's a lot of literature that proves out the value of these efforts and the idea, I think, of corporate stewardship or corporate citizenship is not really going away anytime soon. There might be a backlash, but at the end of the day, you're dealing with big organizations of people and how you manage people and you manage the communities in which these organizations are functioning and you manage those relationships is always going to be relevant. 
whatever phrase or terminology or word falls out of style, that to me is less relevant than like what our business is actually doing and putting their dollars toward. And how are they including these ideas in their overall strategy and, and to remain competitive and to remain differentiated, like you said? Yeah, I think, you know, in the last four or five years, that's where we've seen the siloed sustainability people changing into the C-suite at the table. So I think that has really helped and moved these efforts to become more real and yeah. to become integrated to who they are and where they're going. And as you've mentioned, I mean, the difference that they're going to make. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, you look at, this is something that I believe in the work that I do is good strategy doesn't execute itself. So we can, oh, yeah, it, next, it really, you know, you can have the greatest strategy in the world. It won't execute itself. So a lot of the work I do, it's either I'm strategizing for clients and like putting you know, all the due diligence and the research and kind of like forecasting models together. But then like when it comes to execution, that's like the campaign management piece. It's like, okay, well, how do we make sure that we ingrain all of these learnings and takeaways and ideas into our operations? Yeah. You could look at like a great example of ESG successes like Nike rehauling, overhauling their supply chain in response to major backlash from bad labor practices. You've seen a lot of brands that, you know, have these Consumers, and this is also supported by research, consumers don't actually really super care about the values of the companies or their brands. Mm -hmm. However, when a brand has a major scandal, there is a consumer backlash. Like you pay the penalty. You don't necessarily get rewarded for doing business in an ethical way, but you definitely get penalized by the general public and your customers and partners when you fail and then it becomes public. So like any, you know, child labor or like Bangladeshi warehouse collapsing in on itself, mm -hmm. there is a major cost to a brand's equity and its relationships. And then you have to take preventative measures to prevent these sort of things from happening. Yeah, absolutely. We may have touched on it, but I want to make sure that we talk about the intersection of cause, culture, mm -hmm. and capital. Ooh, that's when I came up with. So like the reason I even started the consultancy is because I was already doing that sort of work just for free. <laughs> so I realized I was giving like thousands of dollars. for it, right? Yeah. So like in January of 2020, I launched the consultancy and I sent an email to like my top X thousands industry contacts. Like I'm doing social impact now. And the idea of cause, culture, and capital was like, from cause standpoint, we're looking at these macro issues and challenges that kind of plague our world. But I think the fundamental thing we need to realize is that all of our problems are man-made problems, which means that there are man-made solutions for every <laughs> single problem that we deal with. So that was like the cause aspect. And then the culture piece, obviously I come from an entertainment background, but I really do believe in the power of storytelling to foment positive change and not in kind of like a wishy-washy, like, oh, like, guilt people for something, something, the whales, we've got to save the whales <laughs> or be, do this thing or else you're a bad person. No, you have to be able to constructively paint a picture for people of what is possible. There's a lot of alliteration in that sentence. I apologize. You have to be able to give people an affirmative vision of what is achievable and how the world could look if only we complete yes. these easy steps. You have to be right. able to really 
give people a clean narrative through line of here's the situation we're in. Here's why it's bad. Here is the shining city on a hill that we can get to. And here's how we scale these challenges step by step. So you have to be able to tell a story and you have to be able to get people to really intrinsically Care. be motivated and you have to have them internalize. And that's that's culture, right? When we look at like the culture of an organization, if it's dysfunctional, if it's toxic, if it's unhealthy, if it's damaging, we need to do culture work internally to address these underlying issues that are causing this dysfunction in order for the organization to move forward in its mission. And that could be like, think about nonprofits and how they can fall apart and how vulnerable they are to like bad culture, right? And how that undermines their mission. So we look at the culture piece, both as an externality, how we're talking to people about what is possible and what is achievable. And as an internality of, does my team believe in this vision? Do we all feel like we are part of this journey together, that we have a seat at the table, that we are mutual stakeholders in each other's success? Do we have like a collective feeling of responsibility to one another and to ourselves? And then the capital is like the obvious, like money is a tool. You need money. You can exchange money for goods and services. I think that's like a you need money, thing, right? Yeah, you use, and like capital could be human capital. It can be like regular money capital. It can be in kind. It can be any sort of tangible resource that you are employing in order to make the culture and the cause pieces work. So it's the engine that fuels it. So that was kind of my thinking with cause, culture, and capital. It's been kind of borne out in the experiences I've had since launching my business. Yeah, no, I like it. I immediately related to it. I knew what you were talking about, and I think it's a great framework. It's interesting because the, one of the things that I also sort of jumped us to the forefront for CEOs and CFOs who create budgets within companies, they're critical to really operationalizing the, the ESG strategy in that sense. And I think that it's interesting how the investors have now, you know, that was sort of the sea change when they decided that they couldn't evaluate the potential long-term value of a company without considering all these ESG factors, the non-financial information. So what I, it seems that this change, I mean, that the investor sort of push, a lot of people have come out claiming things and today in the LA Times, they were talking about, you know, how something like 65% of the companies have committed to a net zero strategy and only 30% of them are actually doing something, having yeah. actions, <laughs> uh, spending money to get there. That's just like, I think it's going to backlash at some point because capital for them in the investor market is going to get more expensive and harder to yes. find. I think that's the thing. That's a great point about cost of capital. Like if your company has these sort of risk factors of either they're being sued all the time for kind of like EPLI type charges, like employment practice liability, which has gone up, I think there those claims have gone up like 211% in the last eight wow. years. And the premiums have gone up 10 to 25%. 
like EEOC charges have increased in severity. I think Goldman Sachs just settled for $215 million for gender pay inequities, right? So there's definitely a penalty to failing on these issues. And then there's a risk. Mm-hmm. My new company, it's a, we haven't launched it yet. So we're, we're entering into an accelerator and, you know, news will come out soon on LinkedIn, but we're looking at DEI, right? And we're looking not just at, you know, that general umbrella of like, is a company diverse and inclusive? We're looking at risk mitigation. So our product looks at the likelihood of whether or not you're going to be sued by your employees for failing on these sort of diversity metrics. So it's like a really interesting space that I've been looking at is like, what is the risk for companies if they fail on their DEI efforts? And it's a very expensive risk when you think that on average, it costs a firm two to $300,000 to replace like a valuable employee. And that's like, you know, the onboarding, talent search, all of these things. So two years, 300,000 is like kind of a conservative estimate. And like the tenure right now is like 18 months before people are like looking for their next job. So like voluntary quit rates are very, very high. Even with all of the layoffs, the mass layoffs you've seen, people are going to be very litigious as a result of those layoffs. So that's like kind of a space that I'm exploring right now, because like even on this DEI, which is like the S in ESG, there's an enormous cost. Or you look at the cost of doing business in a community that is vulnerable, or maybe you're in oil and gas and you're operating in a community where you're seeing adverse environmental impacts, which lead to adverse social impacts in the area where you're doing business. And then that's a lawsuit. So there's always risks to not playing nicely on this area and like higher cost of capital, I think is one of them. So if you look at orgs, yeah. So like from an investor standpoint, you could look at an organization like the GIN, which is the Global Impact Investing Network to kind of see Mm -hmm. where investors are looking at impact investment in general. One of our first guests, uh, she works for an investment company and she does a lot of analysis of companies. And one of the things that they focus on is the retention rate. And what, mm-hmm. how good is the retention rate and at what levels and also coming into diversity? Is there less retention over here with, uh, let's say, middle managers, mm-hmm. managers of a certain diversity uh, makeup? So that's a very, very important factor. Yeah. And you see a lot in with middle managers, especially that's usually the point of failure when you start to see productivity in a team go down. So if you're looking at like, right employee net promoter scores across business units and you notice like a team's productivity or satisfaction just drop, typically you'll do like, you know, I'm sorry, do further investigation. You'll find that it was the manager that was kind of the source of the dysfunction. I like the uh, premise of this new business. <laughs> Thank you. I oh yeah, think, it's, it's going to grow a lot. <laughs> oh yeah, because I think a lot of companies need it. A lot of companies talk about it or they talk the talk, but they really maybe struggle walking the walk and implementing it. Oh, absolutely. Uh, Yeah, you see it every day. So I think that could be a highly valuable service that you provide. Yeah, I'll keep you posted on how things go. No, I definitely have seen that as like the common pain point. People want to, like organizations want to do their work in a way that is beneficial to all of their various stakeholders. Like talk about governance, the idea of stakeholdership is a really important idea to a lot of business leaders and a lot of senior leadership teams and a lot of board members and investors. 
But the question is, is like, how do you even quantify mm-hmm. that you're serving your stakeholders in an effective way that is beneficial? Like there's that mutual beneficial sort of relationship. That's hard to quantify. It's hard to measure. It's hard to even kind of define in a concise way. So a lot of the work I do, I consider myself an impact measurement professional because I focus now more on that. Like how do we make this stuff tangible instead of just kind of like woo-woo? And that's what they need to do. They need to have the ambition. They need to have the actions, but we need to have the results and measurable results and and that's and what and she said, that's what people are getting. Right. Involved. And in reporting, which is how we participate in the ESG, it's all about showing the progress. They state a goal and then that's the milestone. But people who are doing it right show the progress. And it's easier with environmental than mm-hmm. it is with collecting data with social. And, you know, to a certain extent, even governance, because they don't storytell it. I mean, they'll put it down into charts of how many women, how many minority, how many in a pie chart. But mm-hmm. that doesn't get so That doesn't really tell a meaningful story because it's exactly. like, oh, like, are they getting equal access to mentorship? Are they getting promoted at the same rate? Like, there's so right. many things that you could do more richly. And then a kind of a, this is kind of the gap between academia and business, there's a pretty substantial gap because in academia, we actually have a lot of great organizational behavior research and we have a lot of great data on the efficacy of like different types of interventions to increase diversity within an organization, but it's not translating to decision makers on the business side. So a lot of the work I do will just be going to different storytellers, like going to different stakeholders and different parties and using storytelling to make one pillar of expertise and knowledge discernible and meaningful to another party. Yeah, I'm excited for you. I think that's, <laughs> I think that's got a lot of potential, Sienna. Oh, thank you so much. I think I it's greatly it. needed. <laughs> I mean, that's a hope. That the hope is, I think, for any person you talk to in like this ESG space, at least this has been my experience, we all just want the world to function better in a more rational and beneficial way for all people. Like I said earlier, like all of our problems are man-made problems, which means that there are man-made solutions. But it's also that, you know, so much of what is kind of frustrating about the world or dysfunctional, it doesn't need to be this way. Like we make things this way. So it's just getting enough people. I love that attitude. Yeah, I completely agree. A little bit of the hard part is we don't like to admit where we're weak or or mm. what we're challenged at. But mm. good reporting and feedback around that, companies will know whether we're not doing well and will be more willing to use you and your services to help them turn that around. Oh, I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the trust and confidence with the with the investor in particular, but public in, in general, I mean, that's the breakdown. And some of this can be repaired because, and needs to be, because there's this skepticism of what's being said or that they're giving, they're having the talk, but they aren't doing the walk. Yes. uh, I think that's, I'm optimistic, (laughs) 
But that's where it really needs to change. I mean, that's the potential of what all of this could change. Yeah. I mean, there's a, that's a deeper kind of conversation about the state of, I mean, I think we're all speaking as Americans, so we're biased towards the, yeah. like, the U.S. American perspective. But I think right now what's going on in the United States is like people do want to be able to work with each other. They do want to have trust, but there has been, you know, a lot of like degradation of just like the, the idea of trusting and good faith dealings with one another. Part of that is just like the information landscape has become very fragmented and very sullied by junk information, a lot of noise. So if you have like a poor information diet where you're getting all of the stimulus and this glut of kind of junk data, that you're not really putting together like an informed perspective on what's going on, or you might have a very warped perspective of what other people's intentions might be, or it's harder to come to the table and find commonality and also trust that people's intentions are, for the most part, people want to live happy, productive, peaceful lives. They want to be able to go to work and make a living and they want a healthy environment to raise their families. Like people's base needs haven't really changed. Nobody's like so alien from us that it's like these these desires are not compelling to them, right? So if you kind of come to people with the idea of like, hey, I definitely don't want to have year-round fire season in California. Like let's take steps to alleviate (laughs) that. Most people, reasonable people will be on board with like, hey, here are some policy changes that could make that not happen for us year-round all the time. And then the only people who really are pulling against it are people who see like an immediate, there are immediate beneficiaries to the status quo. So I think that is one thing where we yeah. need to be doing it. It's like as inequitable and as unsatisfactory um, the current state of affairs is, we have to ask ourselves who are the beneficiaries of the status yes. quo and really- All like, the money. <laughs> yeah, exactly, right? It's like, it's like that old, there's like an old Latin- term from like the Roman courts, my pronunciation is going to be so bad, like chibon or like quibon, who benefits. You have to look at like the who is benefiting from a situation as well when you're doing your investigation of the landscape, like who are you trying to serve, who are maybe going to act as impediments to your your right. work. Yeah, so true. Good advice. <laughs> Thank you so much. We've really, yes, I've really, really enjoyed, enjoyed this. Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. bring together a lot of elements that really it's fantastic the way that you meld so many different perspectives into it from a business perspective to a just the social impact yeah it's sometimes i'm afraid it can sound like kind of verbal bombardment because this is just how i'm always kind of like pulling things together from different directions it all like makes a cohesive whole in my mind but I'm glad that we enjoyed this conversation. I could obviously go on yes. for, <laughs> for a when, hours. When, when do you plan on officially launching the new company? I think that's TB to be okay. announced. Like, okay. and you will see. So if y'all follow me okay. on LinkedIn, yeah. I'm, I'm very easy to find Sienna Jackson yeah. on LinkedIn. Yeah, um, That's where I put all, that's the only social media I have. <laughs> that's where you get all the news about me. Yeah. Okay. Great. Fantastic. Thank you, Thank you so much. Well, thank you both. Yeah. Thank you for having yeah. me on the show. Well, we'll, we'll, be yeah. in, we'll be in touch and maybe we can do another. Well, there, there, there's a lot more to, to talk about. Yeah. But, uh, we'll reach back out to you. Maybe we'll do it sooner than later because I want to hear what's going on and how you're, because I, I got several clients and uh, helping them in the S part of the ESG 
And I can see where they really need some consultancy and help in this area. So good for I, you. As long as I, my whole goal is to help the helpers. So if they're good people doing good work, right? those are the only people I want to talk to. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> At this yeah. point in my Us career. Too. Us too. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Nice to meet you. Thank you so much, Sienna. You too. All right. All Take care. Yes. Thank you Bye-bye. for having me on. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Hey, thanks for listening. Just a reminder to follow Sustainable Minds wherever you get your podcasts. And please do live a review if you like what we're doing. It helps others discover the show. And of course, we want more listeners. If you want to find out more about how we can help you evolve your corporate brand, culture, and ESG, head to bakerbrand.com. See you on the next episode of Sustainable Minds, exploring the interplay of corporate brand, core beliefs, and ESG.